Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right, hello all, and welcome to our third and final Thomistic Institute lecture of the semester. My name is Danny Kelly, and I'm the president of the Thomistic Institute at Rochester, where we are an affiliate of the Undergraduate Philosophy Council. Uh, the Thomistic Institute is an academic institute which works to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the modern world, especially on college campuses, with an emphasis on the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. We are very fortunate today to welcome a top-notch scholar on St. Thomas Aquinas, Professor Adam Idle of the University of Dallas. Professor Idle joined the University of Dallas Department of Theology this year. Previously, he taught for eight years at Yale University, where he held appointments in the Divinity School, the Program for Medieval Studies, and the Humanities Program. His research focuses on Christian morality and theology, and he is a specialist in medieval scholasticism. The lecture will be about 45 minutes, followed by a 15-minute question and answer session. Uh, please take a moment to silence all devices, and without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Professor Idol. So, so who were the first two lecturers? What were the topics? Uh, a vengeful God, understanding the Old Testament, and uh -huh. then uh, C.S. Lewis and Aquinas. All right. And were you all here for that one? The last one. Well, it's really nice to see you all this evening. I kind of wonder what it is you're doing here. You know, it's a busy time of year, and there are a lot of places you could be. So we want this to be worth our while. But yeah, what what are we doing? What are we looking for? My topic is human nature and human flourishing. And hopefully, you'll have some better sense of what it is that brought you here after I'm through. These are topics that are so near to us, precisely in virtue of being human beings, that it, they can be dizzying subjects. It's a bit like being asked to soliloquize on water, in the case where you're a fish. You need to get some distance from it. And tonight the distance we're going to get is going to be the kind of distance you get when you lean on the thought of one or more thinkers who come from a very different age than your own. In this instance, we'll be thinking with St. Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century theologian and philosopher, and uh, an ancient philosopher named Aristotle, who Thomas Aquinas found to be very important, and whose works he commented on. So, I, have to, I don't have a handout, I don't have a, an overhead for you, but 
My aim is to say a couple things that will be come on in, come on in. That will be crisp and clean and streamlined in a way that will allow you just to sit back and have a listen. But along the way, I just want to invite you to be thinking about your questions. Okay? Alright. If I were a if I were a scientist and I were going to come speak to you about a protein, I would have to assume a number of things. You know, it would be completely unpractisable for me to have to begin with the periodic table, for instance. There are a number of things that one has to assume in a talk like that, and so too here this evening, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions that I think are demonstrable, okay? Though I'm not going to talk, try to demonstrate them. So I, I could try to show you, supposing I could do this, say what the atomic weight of argon or something like that is, but, but that would be a lecture unto itself. And so I'm going to be making a couple of assumptions going to be stating some premises, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to first try to outline what I take to be the basic features of human nature, just in the sense of our creatureliness. You know, think of these as ethnographic notes or zoological notes. We, we are a natural kind, we're a kind of creature, and we have a form of life. And I wanna say what I think will be some uncontroversial things about that, okay? That is a way of laying a basis for then trying to describe what it is about human beings that distinguish us, distinguishes us very, in a very specific way from other animals, okay? So I'm asking about a specific difference between the human animal and other animals, other creatures like us. And all this is, is meant to be in service of asking this question about human flourishing. And the contention of the lecture is this, that for any creature of any kind, the best and happiest life will centrally consist and what I'm going to be calling that creature's perfect activity. That is the activity that instantiates, harnesses, brings about the activity that most fulfills the creature. That's the kind of thing it is. Ready, set, go. So, Here's what I have to say about human beings. I think that like all creatures, we share a basic inclination to live and not die. Now this is a very stubborn fact about living things. This is why, right, bacteria is hard to kill. Okay, this is, uh, this is what explains, you know, the, the indefatigable growth of of algae and mosquitoes and everything else. It's that all living things, insofar as they are alive, 
are inclined to live and to preserve their being. Okay? And that preservation, that basic inclination, is something that operates both within the individual and within the species insofar as creatures, no less, not least human beings, are inclined to propagate to, right, so there's there's you and there's me and and all of us and we all came from other human beings and if you have large questions about how that happened that's for a very different lecture that I won't be giving but that's a fact about the world we're like this we are alive we want to be alive we want to continue both in our own individual person and as a, at, precisely as a kind. And there's more. We are not like, say, sea turtles. You know, I don't know if you've ever been on the beach and you'll see they'll have work quartered off where they found a, a nest and they're, because they're sea turtles, that have, their eggs have been buried there. And when they hatch, it, it, you know, it's basically good luck, kid, because you've got to make your way to the ocean. And you're on your own. But we're not like this. Some, a lot of, a lot of, and a lot of creatures are. We are, like, like many mammals, inclined by nature's necessity to care for our young. We, we rear them. We foster their lives. And we're also, unlike many animals, we're not solitary animals like a sloth. I mean, there's some creatures that are born in roughly the way I just described with the sea turtle. They're born alone and they live alone. And that's their, and, and somehow, okay, it's almost unfathomable for, for at least many of us to, to think about, but somehow, that's exactly the kind of thing they are and exactly what they are inclined to do, and it's good for them. But we are inclined, on the whole, toward sociality. We're social creatures. Look, I mean, look at us. We're all here in this room. And, you know, some people are taking a little bit of distance, you know, but even the folks who are over there, they're still kind of clumped together. But we're not herd animals. It's not just about living in proximity to one another so that we can enjoy the protection of the herd. We, we are cultured creatures and we seek to make things out of our time together. So when we come together, we don't feed, we eat. It's, a, it's something different and distinct about us. Here's another thing. We are insatiably curious. Some more than others, but I'm going to be talking about my dog Lucy here in a moment, and and God rest her soul, she's, she's dead. But uh, she's a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. She was this, just the most incredible dog I've ever owned, and one of the smartest dogs I've ever met, but for all of her intelligence, 
there were a lot of things about the world that Lucy had no curiosity about. Like, I walk into the room, I turn on the light, and as far as I can tell, Lucy just accepts this. This is how lights, this is what he does when we come into the room. If he hits the thing, there go the lights. If he doesn't, okay, water comes out of the faucet, it goes into my bowl, he, this is where the water comes from, right? But take, on the other hand, my two-year-old son. What's that? What's that called? Where does it come from? Why? 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 and on, and on. And human beings are like this. And universities are a testament to this feature of our animality. We are here in a building where I take it that at least some kind of research is done. Research is a kind of inquiry, a kind of search. It, and at least when the university is working as it ought to, it would never be undertaken unless there were a question to be answered and something to be known. The prospect of discovery. You want to ask a question? Yeah. Sorry, but how do you know that great devils are great creatures don't have curiosity? Yes. They don't have their language, they can't tell you. Yes. The question is about, and I'm, I will address this later. In a question, so there's a question from the audience. Well, how do you know that other creatures are, are not curious? And, and I, I think I'll come to this. And if I don't, hold my feet to the fire during the Q&A, okay? All right. Okay, so I've been moving toward a very general set of characteristics about human beings to things that are more specifically and uniquely human, which is what generated this question. I was suggesting that, that human beings are not curious, but uniquely curious. And this is part of, or one effect of, a more basic claim that I'll make now, which is this. That what distinguishes human beings from other animals, from the other kinds of creatures within our genus, is that we are in possession of human reason. We are, we have within ourselves a capacity for rationality that is distinctive. Okay, so here I'm, I might be expecting a number of objections like, well, what about highly intelligent creatures like mammals? Or what about Lucy? Or let's just stick with Lucy. These are, or, or what about other primates? The claim isn't that other animals are without faculties that resemble human rationality. My claim, rather, is that there's something distinctive about the kind of rationality that human beings exhibit, okay? So we are, I can point simply now, rather than making a, a, a demonstration, I can point simply now to a number of manifest facts about human beings that are simply not true of other animals. Chimpanzees are intelligent creatures. They can live among human beings not very well after they've reached sexual maturity. They get really dangerous. 
okay? But they're communicative. Uh, but they don't, they have not built universities. They haven't been to the moon. Uh, they, they are not uh, engaged in the kind of inquiry that we are engaged in here together right now. There's something specifically human about human rationality. And that is one of those premises that I'm going to have to just set down and we can, we can interrogate it later. I will, I will address just one objection like this just to say, in fact, the more we've come to find out, say, about canine psychology, the more we've come to see that what looks like a high degree of rationality to us is actually a part of a, a dog's adaptive function. What makes dogs seem so smart to us is precisely the fact that they're good at living in our homes. Okay, you know, other there are a lot of animals that might, you know, just in terms of possibility, raw possibility, could live in a human home. Some of them kind of will tolerate it, like a cat. A cat lives in your house, but it, but depending on the cat, but you know, they're, they're not domesticated in the same way dogs are. Their rationality, what appears to us as being so, uh, so perspicuous is in fact a kind of adaptive function. And this is one of the interesting things I think that's come out of canine psych psychological research in, in the last several years. Anyway, the claim here is just what? That human beings are distinct from other animals in virtue of our capacity for reason. And this points to the claim that I want to make now about what it is that human flourishing consists in. Now, earlier, I began to talk by saying that for any creature of any kind, the best and happiest life will be the one in, that is centrally built around what I'll call now its perfect activity. And to go and find now what the perfect activity of a human being is would require us to say first what is the highest faculty of a human being. What my, my, so, the idea is this, that if reason is uniquely human, and, or that human reason is uniquely human, and if it's also the case that reason is our highest faculty, that whatever our fulfillment most consists in will, have, will be most essentially an activity that involves that faculty. If you want some evidence that human re that reason is a higher faculty or higher capacity than other capacities, then you can ask about the relationship between them. That is, other faculties and human reason. Let me give you a couple of, I think, plausible examples. So, I was just speaking with a young man about Greek life here at the University of Rochester. Okay, one thing that you'll notice if you're a participant in Greek life or a just a curious onlooker is there's a lot of desire going on in, uh, in you know, say the stereotypical standard Greek event, right? There are 
there are people who are drawn together, there's music, there's partying, there, there's drinking. All of this kind of has a teleology. It's all heading in a direction. Okay? Uh, people are moved by desires for, for food, for, for sexual interaction, and and by various other desires. But what we think is best in a human life is when those de desires are brought into conformity with some ideal about the way we ought to be. So it, a reasonable amount of alcohol to consume or a reasonable way to conduct oneself with uh, persons that we're attracted to will be will be conformed to the, our judgments, and those judgments will be right insofar as they conform to, it, on, well, minimally, the kinds of creatures we are. So notice, for example, we talk about things like temperance or moderation. And at one basic level, right, when we are moderating our, you know, partaking of food and drink, we are limiting our consumption of things like this in virtue of what is good for us as the kinds of creatures we are. If you go and eat, what's it called? What's the, the thing? Of it? A garbage plate. A garbage plate, okay? And, okay, fine. But if you have two garbage plates, seven days a week and twice on Sundays, you're doing something to yourself that is probably not good for you just in virtue of the kind of creature you are. You know, I, you know, you if you're 17, you may think you're a hero, but if you're 41, you'll learn. <laughs> okay, so we seek to bring our desires into alignment with what is what we take to be reasonable, and what we take to be reasonable is indexed, at least in a large sense, an important in an important respect to our our animality. Okay? So, human beings, I'm saying, are rational creatures. I'm suggesting that reason is a higher faculty than various other kinds of faculties we have, faculties of desire. But to discover what it is that would make a human being most fulfilled, we would need to now begin asking a question about the object of reason. And the thought is something like this. Well, what if it were the case that the highest activity of a human being, its perfect activity, were the highest activity of its highest faculty with respect to its highest object? That's a lot to say. Here's what I mean by that. So, I'm looking at you all right now. That's a visual, I'm making use of the visual faculty. And this object of sight is seeable things. The object of reason, on the other hand, is what? what things that are rational are reasonable. We are, we are 
engaged in, we are, when we're engaged in the kind of conversation I'm engaged in right now, we are looking for the truth about things. And there's a lot of contestation these days about what the truth consists in, but there's still some basic standard agreement among us that it can be found. Okay, so what is the highest object of human reason? And what is the highest activity of human reason? Well, here I need to make one more distinction. Right now, I'm engaged in a kind of rational activity that resembles something like a journey. We call it discursive reason. It comes from the Latin, ancient Latin word discorere, which means literally to run. I'm moving from one thing to the next, looking for things. And you do this all the time, right? Where's my classroom? Where's my, where are my pants? Where are, uh, what, is the, what is the hypotenuse of such and such? This is, these are questions about, uh, that move from things known to things unknown. I know where I'm at. What I don't know is, where's my sock? Someone left a sock over here. I, it was probably the professor. Uh, I say that uh, from experience. Um, but there's another kind of rational activity that's less like a search, less like a journey, and more like a kind of rest. And we don't have very many good words for it nowadays. One of the, the older words for it was speculation, which comes from the, the word speculare, which is what you do when you're gazing at the stars. Right. There are a couple different ways to look at the stars. You can, if you're an ancient sailor, look at the stars and try to find your way home, in which case you're engaged in the kind of discursive reasoning that I was talking about. But there's another kind of stargazing, which is aimed at the object of inquiry or the object of knowledge, not in order to know something else about it, but just to behold it. And if you've ever worked at a mathematical theorem or tried to unlock a word puzzle or tried really hard to understand a philosophical issue, or, or take any anything that you're doing here. I mean, presumably there are things that you're actually learning, which means you're, you're, you're discovering things that you didn't know before. Once you get to the point where you, you, you can, you're no longer, no longer involved in the, the, the grind of trying to figure it out, there's the moment where you just behold the thing. And it's beautiful. And it's just worth looking at and beholding and contemplating. Taking in. And this isn't just a rational activity. This is an activity that is, in many instances, an activity that overflows in a way that it comes packaged with a kind of delight, a kind of joy. 
My dog Lucy, who was a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, had a perfect activity, and you can hear what that activity was in her name. Retriever. Lucy retrieved. I could throw a ball, I could throw a frisbee, I I could I could throw a a little mallard, you know, a little rubber duck with her all day. And she'd never stop. And if she did stop, she'd start going again as soon as she could she could get the energy up, but she really never stopped. She would it was it wasn't the thing she did all the time, but it was like the thing around which her life was built. You'd look at Lucy sleeping on the bed, you know, she's saying, frisbee, frisbee, frisbee. You could just see it. Lucy was a retriever. That's the activity in which her, her, all of her powers, her highest capacities are most realized and in which, in which she finds the greatest delight. What is the human activity. If retrievers retrieve, humans don't human, what is it that we are for? What is it that that most engages us? And the answer I, I've suggested will be, it will have something to do with the highest object of our highest faculty, and it will be the activity of that highest faculty that will resemble more like a kind of gazing than a kind of earnest seeking. And according to Aristotle, and according to Thomas Aquinas and his understanding of Aristotle, the highest activity of a human being is theoria, contemplation. And the highest object of that activity is God, the first cause. You know, you can just kind of hear it, it's baked into the name. If, once you've got a first cause, you don't, you can't get anything higher than that. And if, supposing you were able to begin with the ephemeral world around you and ask about the causes of why things are the way they are and how they got here and why these things are in motion, and you could begin reasoning backward from what is in front of you here and now to things more distant, and you could begin asking about the causes of those things, but eventually your inquiry would have to stop, and whatever it stopped at would be the first cause. And according to Aristotle, that is the, the unmoved mover who moves all things by being loved by them, and he knew, he tells us, Basically, nothing else about it except that. And his idea was that the best and happiest life, what human flourishing consists in, is not simply a life that is entirely consumed from beginning to end, day in and day out, with this activity. But it's, the act, it's a life in which that activity has a, a central role to play. Now this is hard for us to understand because we, as a, we live in a moment in Western civilization where we don't understand the relationship between work and play, between 
between labor and le leisure. You know, I, I spend a lot of my time, like I expect you do, working in order to work. And, or I think of my days off as resting in order to work. Whereas for most of, most of history, people who, people who think about these things have wanted to say, it's really the other way, isn't it? We work in order to play. And a good life will be one in which this kind of contemplation will be made possible and a good society will be a kind of society in which lives like that are possible. So that's the idea. And those are the arguments I can give from reason about what human flourishing consists in. And now I'm going to say something in a very different register about, uh, about Thomas Aquinas' idea about what Aristotle himself could, could see and could not see about this conception of human flourishing. Thomas Aquinas thought that Aristotle understood human nature and the nature of human flourishing as well as anyone has. And you can go read his commentary, which is rather elegant, and he spells out in a way that will, I think, bring into focus many of the things that I've been suggesting this evening, but in a way that, that will, will tie many claims and inferences together in a way that I, I haven't tried to do. Nevertheless, Thomas, who's not just a philosopher, but also, and more principally, a theologian, and not just a theologian, also a preacher. He also knew that Aristotle could only know one part of what human flourishing ultimately consists in. And that's because he thinks that, as I think, that we have, in addition to reason, revelation. And that revelation is, it has come about finally and fully in the person of Jesus Christ and in the Holy Scriptures that attest to him and the work of God in the world. And Thomas has it in Scripture that we are made not simply to contemplate God as an end unknown, as Aristotle did, but to contemplate God, not just in this life, but in the life to come, as, uh, as uh, Christ says to the disciples, a, not simply as a stranger or a slave, but as, as a friend. And that is the vision of human flourishing that respects, on the one hand, the integrity of, of a, an Aristotelian inquiry and says, look, this account of human flourishing vis-a-vis -vis our creatureliness, what we can discover about what it means to be a human being just by our own capacities of reason is, is whole in unto itself. And yet it's missing something insofar as it's based only on what 
human beings can know. There are, there are other things about the world, other things about God, other things about ourselves and our place in the world and in relation to God that we can only be told. And St. Paul, the Apostle, says, uh, with respect to these things, that one day we will be transformed and made like God, and that we do not know what we will become. And in that respect, human nature is something still of a mystery. And I will leave you with that mystery. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.